Welcome to the Experimental Aircraft Channel podcast and video podcast series, where we talk with our guests about experimental, light sport, and ultralight aviation. We are just getting started with this, so if the audio isn't 100% just yet, bear with us. Perfection is coming. Let's jump right into the interview. Okay, everybody. So I am here today with uh, Dan Reynolds, who back in 2018 set a world record in the, the Valdez Stoll competition for a very, very, very short landing. And uh, so, so Dan, um, well, first of all, where are you talking to us from today? Where are you located on, in the world? Good morning, Brian. I am located in Dawson City in Yukon Territory up in the far parts of Canada. So Alaska borders only about 90 air miles from my ranch here. So, um, yeah, it's still winter on up here. We still got snow up to my waist and a lot of difference compared to some parts of the world. But so by definition, you are, you, you are truly a bush pilot up in that, that territory. Yes, I am one of the few. We don't have as many as Alaska has, but I am been in the bush now flying for my career, basically, for the past, since 78, you do the math. Okay, okay. Without giving away my age. <laughs> pretty cool, pretty cool. So for starters, uh, and I've seen the replay in the video several times from 2018, what exactly is the record that, that you held or hold for the, the short landing? So I'll back it up a little bit. I, I did okay. apparently set, I set a record of Valdez for sure. And people are calling it the world record. But if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records, I don't think you'll see it listed there. Um, and lots of people say, well, I can land shorter than that. Yeah, that's fine. And I've landed shorter on windier days. But what it is, is at Valdez, it's a sanctioned, pre-sanctioned event. So you can't go out and pick your windiest day possible and go hover land an aircraft because you can do that. Anybody could do that. Sure. Um, so it has to be a pre-sanctioned event. You have to have official judges and you, that way you can't plan for wind. It, the conditions are what they are. And everyone that's competing that day have the same conditions. Everything's equal. Airplanes aren't, pilots aren't, but conditions are. So in 2018, the winds were favorable. It's um, really high density altitude or low density altitude, high, high density altitude there because it's right at sea level and it was a cold day and yeah, everything just came together and my little bird worked its magic and landed in nine and a half feet from the line. Wow, that, that's short. But in, in reality, it seemed even shorter than that because do they count down from where any wheel touches, your tail wheel touched first and then your main. So they measure the distance from your tail to your mains, because you only rolled a few feet. Yeah, so no, your tail wheel can touch down before the line, but if your mains touch down before the line, then it's an automatic disqualification for that run. Okay. So you have to make sure your mains touch on or after the line, and then the distance is measured from the line to your main axles. Right, okay. So I guess just the camera, the, line, the camera yeah, angle made it look like it was like, three feet or something like that, I guess. But in reality, <laughs> I mean, nine and a half feet is still really, really short, but just from that camera angle, it looks like it was much less than that. Yeah, it's, um, I didn't realize I had actually landed that short until the line judge came on the radio and said, stay right there, don't move. And then Frank Knapp was on the run right behind me and he said, oh, that can't be good on the radio. And I'm going like, what's all the fuss about? Because I was so focused on flying the airplane, just in the zone. 
And uh, when I looked back and I could see the white lion right behind my cabin, my tailwheel wasn't even close to coming across it. I thought, wow, I just did that. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. <laughs> and then when he said nine and a half feet, I knew what Frank's record, previous record was, and I knew I'd beat it. That's when that's, I got really excited. That's really impressive. That's awesome. So, so to back completely way back, back, uh, in short and abbreviated, uh, how did you get started in aviation uh, in the first place? So as a kid, I always loved everything that fly uh, or flew. I, I love birds. I loved airplanes. And my dad bought an outfitting concession in 67 up here in the Yukon. And it's very remote. So there's no roads, no rivers you can really navigate. So he tried using horses to get 100 miles back in the middle of nowhere. Okay. And that wasn't very effective. Horse and aircraft started being used for the backcountry about that time. So he got his pal's license. I got to fly in the J3, then a Super Cub, then a 180 as a kid. And yeah, the, the flying aspect of it and airplanes themselves just fascinated me. I loved it. So I took it up um, as soon as I was old enough to be able to get my license. I started flying. And, uh, That's awesome. Yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> That's awesome. So it's been your family for some time and then you kind of grew up into it and then took it on. Yeah, I sure did. And then I also love designing and building things too. It's always been my nature. And so that kind of fit right into the whole thing. And, and in the later years, I started actually getting into ultra flights, which is what we're talking today. Yep. Um, because of that. And uh, yeah, I've just, that it's filled two passions for me the design end of it and the whole theory of flight and how things work together in harmony and, and sometimes what doesn't work. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then you get, you get to fly it too. You design it and you fly it. That's fun. Yeah, I say in aviation, I mean, there's no other place I feel you can get so many different things all mixed into one. You know, the art and engineering and adrenaline and everything, it's all mixed into one package. You know, it's a very unique um, situation, if you will. So are, are you a private pilot or what, what ratings do you have or license or whatever? So I am a commercially rated pilot. I okay. actually hold an air charter license that I'm out for hire if I so choose. I need that to fly my clients commercially. I have two Super Cubs and a 185 that I've had since the 70s. I um, have a lot of time on those. Those are my work planes per se for the commercial end of it. And then my work toy and play toy is, of course, my ultralights. I've been in them since 1984 is when I bought my first WT-11. So what do you currently have? Obviously you have the Chinook, which is very specialized, unique, but is that what you have left or you have others? So I have three Chinooks right now. Uh, okay. I have enough materials to build about five other ones. I'm, I'm a bit of a hoarder, so I bought a lot of raw materials and set myself up to build these planes right from scratch. And I actually built a two place about four years ago, maybe five now, from scratch when you could no longer get any parts for them between ownerships of the actual company that produces them. Okay. So I've, I've been, I've got a hanger here that's heated in the winter time. Winters are long, cold, just fits into what I like to do. In the winter times, I spend a lot of time in the hangar. Awesome. Awesome. So you mentioned how you got into flying and what about, what made you decide to start, well, to build a plane and then to, to start showing up to these venues or events for competition? Well, these is, um, 
where the stole competition basically was born in Alaska. I think some bush pilots sat around a coffee table and were talking about what they could and couldn't do with super cubs in the backcountry, and hence somebody decided to challenge somebody. Right. And now we are where we are today. So I had known about Valdez and what they were doing over there with some competition. And I always thought, well, that'd be kind of cool to go to because it's right up my alley, flying super cubs and this and that. And so a friend of mine sent me a video that he took while he was over there at one of the competitions and that sparked my interest when i saw what they were doing over there i was like oh my i gotta go see that in person so a good friend of mine an employee he jumped in my little single place ultralight and i jumped in my two place and away we went we took off from dawson and then a day later we were in valdez so and yeah i, I entered the competition um, talked to joe who organizes it over there and, and he said yeah we could probably fit you in a category because we were totally different than anything there no one had ever brought anything like what we were flying and i thought that'd be kind of neat to just go over there and show the those people kind of what i like to fly i mean i got cubs i could take a super cub but i thought now let's go something different and yeah it's it's an ultralight per se but if you tried license in the states it's experimental light sport it would not fall into that but in Canada here, it actually classifies an ultralight category. We have way different rules here. You can take a, a Super Cub and turn it into an ultralight. You can register it as an ultralight. So wow. things are, you know, you get into this argument, well, an ultralight shouldn't compete with a Super Cub. But, you know, you can take that argument all over the place. Should Frank Knapp in his modified J3 compete with a stock J3? Is it fair? No, it's not. But it's bigger than that. Let's just focus on the pilot and the plane that he's flying and the ability that he can fly it to. Yeah, and yeah. Well, imagine, I imagine when you showed up, uh, I mean, it's a very unique looking aircraft, number one. And then number two, um, primarily the tractor configuration is what's used in, in stolen bush. So you show up with a pusher. Was there any other pushers there? No, there was no other pushers there. And I remember when I rolled up there in the, in the rain and, you know, blew through Thompson Pass and some pretty nasty weather and just happy to be on the ground and over there. And <laughs> it was a couple of days before the event. And, and so we're tying down in the rain and the winds are coming in and we're just all smiles, Spencer and I. And this guy's parked in a motorhome right on the edge of the chain link fence and he's got his window down and he's just looking at us. So I thought, you know, I've got to go over and do the Canadian thing and be friendly. And, so I went over and said hi to him, and he says, what do you call those things? And I just looked at him and said, scary. <laughs> and he started laughing. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of people were going, like, what are they, and why are they here, and who are they? You know, first right. Canadians to ever show up Pete. And you know, We had a lot of things. We got ribbed quite a bit, but we had the biggest tent and the best camp out of anybody that flew in there, and everyone said, well, how would you get that hit there, you know, from Dawson? I said, well, we flew it over here in these birds. These birds can haul quite a load there. You flew all the way. Well, then conversation started, and by year two, everyone was like, oh, wow, good to see you again. And, you know, they were so nice. Awesome, awesome. Well, tell me a little bit about the, the Chinook and why you chose that airframe or how you even found out about it, because I'll be honest with you, until seeing – you, I, I don't think I've ever, maybe maybe a long time ago, I might have brushed across it in a magazine somewhere, but it's definitely not, nothing that I was really versed in. So how did you come across it and choose that as something that I've got to build this airplane and then to the point where now you've modified it to make it uh, kind of your own between the landing gear and the slats and you've got all kinds of mods you've done. So how, how did you land on that airframe? 
So there's a lot of stories all wrapped up in one. I can start back with how did I ever get in a, in a Chinook in the first place. So in 1982, a Polish designer named Vladimir designed the first um, double-surfaced enclosed cockpit ultralight. And he was a, it was a company called Birdman out of um, Edmonton, Alberta. And back in those days, I just got, you know, started rolling into cubs and doing bush flying. And, but I was very seasonal. I only flew a couple months out of the year. And, and you're trying to build time and get experience and be safe. I need something I could play around in the wintertime. So I started looking around for what would be cheap, affordable for me at that time. I was young, just starting a family. So next thing you know, a friend of mine in Whitehorse, um, where I was wintering, had this little ultralight that he was building, but he didn't know how to fly it. So he came and asked me if I would be interested. So I went down and looked at it. Lo and behold, in his garage, here was this little machine that, that had an enclosed cockpit that I could fly in the wintertime and had double service wing and actually kind of had control services like a regular aircraft. So I thought, oh, I might want to try that. And so I did and I bought it. When I test flew it, I bought it the same day I test flew it. It was so much fun. And so, so I, I started so, so just So just to clarify, back in the day when ultralights were, I don't say really, really popular, but uh, kind of getting going, were the ultralights only rudder and elevator? They didn't have ailerons and flaps and stuff? or so back in the day in 1982 when this design was in the the, the ultralight the rad ultralight to have back then was a quicksilver mm -hmm. and so it had you know single service swing cables holding the wings all on with your king post had a rudder and an elevator and had what they called spoilerons which were two little air brakes that, that killed lift instead of ailerons okay and so it was effective but and it worked uh, but they were open cockpit. You try to fly one of them at my S18. I'll tell you what, it's pretty cold. I tried it. No, I figured out real quick that was not the bird for me. <laughs> yeah. Plus, they're not that good because you haven't got, you know, they're, they're good, but they're not as good as a conventional um, control services. Okay. Okay. So, so, so the Chinook kind of wrapped everything. The, the, the Chinook fit the bill for you. Now, was it always, was it a single seat and they later made it into a two seater? Because you actually fly a two-seater, but you don't utilize all of it, correct? Because you use the baggage or something like that? So the original design was a single place with a 27-horse Rotax engine on. That was my original bird. And okay. I flew 700 hours in that thing. Then they came out with a two-place version of that model. And then they went out of business. And then another company bought them. And I think I have my notes here. I made to think I want to get it correct here. So Birdman produced them from 2000 or 1982 all the way to about 1987 or so. And then ASAP, a, a company out of Alberta again, bought them out and then modified them with a wing and tail upgrade. So they took all the old two places and then they also did a conversion for the single. And I had one at that time. So I was the first person to get the single place wing tail conversion, which gave it the Seekonite cover faster, just changed the dynamics of the bird completely because the other one was stretch on Dacron sails. So they were held tight by bungees. Simple, but they had their drawbacks. Okay, so the design now has a true fabric versus the Dacron. Yes. Well, it's still fabric, but that was a pre-sewn sleeve that's pulled on and so forth. Yeah. Okay. 
yeah, there's still a lot of ultralights that use those, and, and I think Rand. Yeah, it's very, very common, very popular, sure. Yeah, it's simple, simple for the builder and, and stuff, but, you know, there's drawbacks to some of that. But anyway, um, yeah, so then they made the two-place, and they quit making the single-place altogether, and, and so I always liked the single-place because it was a little more maneuverable, had a smaller wing, same-size tail feathers, so I just liked the handling characteristics, and all the two-places I got into – I was, they just felt a little more sluggish. So I kind of steered away from them, but I kept working on them for friends. So I decided, well, why don't I build a two place and modify it a little and see if I can make it, you know, handle like the single place. And so I did that. I made the tail feathers bigger to match and proportional. And that's where I really started modifying things. That's when my engineering mine started taking off and so I designed landing gear changes to suit what I wanted to do and and yeah it's um it's been a lot of years of playing with this and playing with that the two biggest things on the standard Chinook were the fuel system I did not like for the backcountry flying that I do and the landing gear wouldn't take the abuse that I wanted to throw at it the rest of the airframe was a great little platform to work on very strong reliable but once I modified all those, I had myself quite a little plane. And like the single place, original one has over 5,000 hours on it. What? 5,000 hours? 5,000 hours on my original 1983 I, WT-11. I think maybe you ought to call Guinness back and get in the world record for that because that's <laughs> – I don't think I've ever heard of that many hours on a ultralight-ish type aircraft. I mean, at that point, it's experimental, I guess, but – or is it, yeah. was that, well, in the U.S. standards, would that be an ultralight or still an experimental? In the U.S. standards, it's um, originally probably would have made the ultralight, but as soon as they modified the wing and did all that stuff, put bigger engines on and put bigger fuel tanks on it, it blew it out. You have to register as experimental if it's an ultralight. Like the okay. one that I'm competing with, it weighs 540 pounds. Okay. And it holds six hours of fuel, 18 gallons of fuel i mean it's a workhorse it, it would not fall into the ultralight looks like an ultralight yes i agree but it would never fit your guys' standards so tell me what what you shared with me off camera when we first met actually we, we first met at the lone star stole competition in gainesville texas just a couple weeks ago and i was trying to get uh, some time to set aside for an interview and and dan and i were just talking we were talking away we probably talked for an hour but I never turned the camera on because you were about to go compete because the rain was going to stop any moment, and then it was just like it was all, you know, ready five. Everybody's ready five. So I apologize that I didn't catch Dan on site in Gainesville, but that's why we're talking now. But during that time, you mentioned the useful load in the baggage compartment, and I was just blown away. What exactly can you carry in this ultralight-looking but experimental aircraft? Because it's incredible. So... Yeah, that's one of the things that I realized very quickly about this design um, is the fact that it actually, you know, with a few modifications can be turned into quite a little workhorse. And the reason for that is, is most light aircraft have the engine up front. The pilot then has to sit, you know, close to the CFG. And if you, the only way you can put a useful load in one of those would be to be beside yourself. As soon as you get too far behind the pilot, then you're getting aft CFG. And when your plane only weighs 540 pounds to start with, your proportion of your weight starts affecting your CFG. You know, even in a Super Cub, I mean, you have that problem if you try to stick too much too far back. So with this bird, 
everything you put in behind you is on a CFG. The, the beauty of these is like, I do have a, a stabilizer trim on my Valdez bird, but on all my rest of them, I don't have any trim mechanism because it's not needed. If I fly my two place by myself, it's rigged for my weight in the front, the engine and the airframe is the rest of the, the balance point. And then anything, if I put a person in it or I put a heavy load in it, it doesn't change the trim, it still flies hands off. And that therein lies the beauty. You don't have that CFG issue. So you can, you can load them up to what the wing is capable of carrying in the airframe. And these birds are pretty amazing. They have a really good wing on them. Like 600 pounds is basically the useful load in one of these. Like, so the plane weighs 500, 520 pounds. My two places 520 pounds. I can throw 600 pounds. That includes me, fuel, and baggage. Wow. So that's more than its own weight. And it yeah. does it quite well. You, you, have, you have the ants of aviation of aircraft, right? <laughs> yeah, I have the ant. And hence the, the decal on the side of it because everyone kept just giving me gears when they'd see me unload a load out of that thing when I'm working it. But you know what? I was looking at decals and I just had to stick Daffy Duck on there because he's got his tongue hanging out. He's got a pot belly, but he's still in the air. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there's something else that really, really just blew my mind. And uh, you, you fly a two-stroke. Uh, I believe it's a 582. So, yeah, I started with five, well, 277s originally, which was a single um, cylinder Rotax. Then I went to a 447, then I went to 503s, and 503s my go-to bush um, engine because it's, it's uh, air-cooled, pretty simple, very reliable. I've got almost all my hours on 503s. But when I got into this competition in, in the two place, I know 503 works, but it just, I wanted a little more like everyone else. You're chasing that, you know, ultimate dream. So I started to jump an engine. So I went to 582 in my two place, great engine. I've had a lot of good luck with that. And then when I got to competition, I started with a 582, then I went to a 618 and now I'm competing with a 670. So. Where does that end? I mean, there's there's a limit to what you can put for weight back there, but the 670 seems to be a nice engine too. So uh, to be honest with you, and maybe for other people too, I was aware of the 582, and I was not aware of the 618 or 670, which I think the 618 I heard of. Was that, uh, not to give away advertising here, but the Rotax Rick conversion, or is, is that the 618, or did, did Rotax actually make a 618? So Rotex actually made an aircraft version with the 618. So it was okay. originally a 617 in snowmobile world, but they converted it, made a heavier crank. So it um, came out because of the Greyhead 582. They were having some crank issues when you start putting some hours on it. And so they built this beefier engine, puts out 75 horse, good reliable engine. Um, but then when the 912 came on, I think because Rotax had two things competing against each other, the 618 was similar in horsepower, a lot lighter and a lot cheaper, mm. but they were trying to market the 912. So I speculate, and that's just me speculating, it's not facts, that they dropped the 618 for that reason to help boost their 912 market. Or they Make saw the 618 not becoming as popular because of the 912, I'm not sure. Makes sense. So, so you are currently running the 618 or the 670 or what, what are you currently running with so, this? So currently I've got the 670. I just installed it um, about a month ago. 
So okay. I, I kind of had it mind to try for Gainesville and, and see what happened down there at the Lone Star Soul. And I like it. It, it um, came from Rotax Rick. You're right on that. Um, okay. I, I finally pulled in and, and got him to build me one. And, you know, I was hesitant because it's a Skidoo engine. Rotax never originally made it as an aircraft engine. And I thought, you know, I still want something fairly reliable. So I, I did it. I bought one and it's got all the aircraft mods to it. Okay. okay. So it has uh, the ignition. It has, you know, the, the exhaust, like there's, there's the, the, the cooling system is, is the superior cooling system that the Rotax used in the aircraft versions. So they don't get um, cold seizures. So I feel pretty comfortable with that. And so far it's been running really good. Um, it seems to be a really nice engine. Definitely puts out more power than the 618, but doesn't weigh anymore. So there's the beauty in that. Right, right. So one of the biggest things that, I, that really shocked me was you've, been flying two-stroke for a long time and there's a lot of naysayers about two-strokes me personally i haven't experienced it although i can kind of understand and appreciate that being the ultralights are kind of like the entry level and most economy affordable that the the people that are buying these may not be the people that are maintaining them as they should be so kind of factor that into for two-strokes that being said how many hours did you put on your is it 582 before it needed overhaul the, the or 503s so Rotax recommends three yeah so 503 is what i have the most hours on okay but, um the, rotax recommends uh an overhaul at 300 hours so the overhaul entails checking the cylinders pistons um you know re reboard them to oversize if needed and replacing the crank um so Again, it goes to with any engine, you know, they're only as good generally as what you, how you take care of them and how you treat them. If you leave them setting around, you even take a light combing and leave it setting around or don't operate it properly or maintain it, it's not going to be as reliable. So I think a lot of the, the, the problems with two strokes is they started from a snowmobile engine, got a bad rep right out of the box because they were just taking snowmobile engines and, and throwing them in with some modifications and it just wasn't working well for longevity. So then Rotax started actually making um, two strokes for aircraft. And again, they had a learning curve. Some of the newer ones had bearing problems because they were just taking a, a snowmobile engine they've reduced and, and turning into ultralight engines. And so they, over time, they started upgrading and, and fixing problems that we were having after you know, use. And so the 503 is got the longest history, well had at the time, longest history. And they did a lot of modifications to the cranks and to make them more reliable. And I run two of my 503s. Now, mind you, I'm not recommending this to anybody out there, but I run them often. I take care of them. They're always jetted right. I use good fuel. They're stored in a hangar. So all those things add to longevity. And so... With that said, I run two of them that have over 800 hours on and send them out to Rotax to rebuild. And they said, if I didn't know you better, I'd say you're lying. These cranks look basically brand new. I mean, the engines were in perfect working order. At eight, you know, one was 840 hours that I sent out. That's insane. Um, that is insane. Yes. If, and, if you and, talk well, to let, Rotax. Let me also outside, say sorry. why that is insane because I know the kind of uh, territory that you fly in. So, 
you know, you, you reach that, that limit of 300, 350 hours and you're like, I'm still up here fine. 700, 800 hours. Meanwhile, there's mountains and trees and wow. You are, you are a true test pilot, Dan. Uh, yeah. And, but with that said, you got to realize that, that I'm mostly flying in the wintertime. I'm on skis and those little birds, there's, there's snow everywhere. The rivers are all frozen and there's so much open country back there that if you would have a problem, you're going to be able to set down generally without even any damage if you ever did have a problem. So I don't I know. I, th I, I think I saw <laughs> a picture or a video you, you shared. You were flying over a glacier or something. It looked like a glacier. I don't know the other day. That looked pretty uh, intense. Yeah, but it's all open. Okay. You can land those little birds anywhere out there. So if it was over a jungle, um, I would probably be not running them 800 hours. <laughs> I wouldn't have been out there, you know, going to where other people haven't gone and prove, trying to prove a point. But, gotcha. That's incredible. I've got 400 hours on the 50 or 582 that I have on my two place, and it's still working fine. I'm going to probably send it out just to get an idea of what what's going on with it because they do recommend 300 hours but it, it's how often you fly them if you leave them setting outside don't fly them your fuel gets bad you're, you get corrosion starting in things from not being run you're going to really shorten the lifetime of any engine including a two-stroke and i think that's the case with a lot of these they're sitting out somewhere people can't afford a hangar they can't afford to fly them a lot and then they go out maybe once or twice a month or maybe even less and then flash them up and go. You're you're shortening the lifespan of that engine. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, thank you very much for sharing uh, kind of a broad spectrum of what you're involved in between flying and the airplane, and then also flying two strokes. I'd love to, to talk much longer, as it's an easy conversation with you. We've already gone 30 minutes, but uh, I really appreciate appreciate your time today. Uh, do, you, do you think you're going to be getting more into this stole thing? You've already been to Valdez. You've driven all the way down to Texas to compete there. And I know they're trying to get that going on as a racing series. Are you going to travel the country countries and uh, continue to compete? I would love to. Um, right now, a lot of things are up in the air with what's going on globally. So sure, we don't know sure. where it's all going to land. Um, and time-wise until I retire from my, my line of work, I am really not available from July till October um, because of my, I raise all the hay here in my hay fields for the community in July and then I'm outfitting through August, September and into the beginning of October. And I need to be there 24 seven. So that is the, the drawback right now. So hopefully I can, the economy is are good, I can retire and on my dream, I would love to go to all these. I'd love to keep competing. I love meeting the people in the Steve Henry's and the Frank Knapps of these worlds. They inspire me. I, I love, um, you know, seeing what they can do and, and being in there in the crowd trying to, trying to keep them honest, basically <laughs> is you know, it's so much fun. Awesome, awesome. So let me get this straight real quick. So for your full-time work, you literally make hay while the sunshine, sunshine, whatever that saying is. <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah, up here, um, if you've ever been to the north up here, we get 24 hours of sunshine from about the middle of May till the middle of July. It doesn't okay. get dark. And okay. I'm, you know, think we got a short summer, but it's intense. And um, I have hay fields here and produce all the hay for the community around Dawson for all the livestock that are around here. So, so I do that. Um, 
yeah, I like doing that. And then I outfit, you know, run an outfitting operation in August, September, and October. Wow. Well, that sounds like an amazing place. I'd love to, maybe I'll make my way, way up there one day and come visit you and take a tour of the, the area. Yeah, there's a lot of history around here. You got the Klondike Gold Fields, of course, the Klondike Gold Rush. Everyone's heard about that. It's on TV now. They have all those shows around that. So there's that going on around here. And it's um, pretty neat. There's not a lot of people up here. And it's neat country. Um, if you ever get up this way, if you don't stop by, I'll be mad at you. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks again for your time this morning. I appreciate the uh, the peek into your, your life and into aviation. And I uh, hope to talk to you again one day soon. Okay, I hope to see you again, too. And sorry I didn't get to your interview there at um, Gainesville. I mean, I, I wanted to get out of there and get home right away, so I didn't stick around on Sunday. I apologize for that. But it's been great talking to you, Brian. You take care, and um, I'll keep on watching what you're doing out there. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us here on the Experimental Aircraft channel for the video podcast and or podcast. These episodes will be available on YouTube as well as all the popular podcast platforms. Thanks for watching or listening. We'll catch you next time.